So good to be in the house of God, praising God with you guys. Um, we are going to be continuing our series called Upside Down, and we're walking through these Beatitudes, and it's been a, an amazing time just to study Scripture together and, and just to look at what the Scripture says. And so uh, this is Valentine's weekend, Valentine's Day, and so uh, I thought it'd be fun to uh, just share a couple, not really jokes, they're, they're really bad things, they're really bad um, memes or jokes or whatever, but I thought I'd just do it. I only have three of them, so I'm not going to take too terribly long with it, but first one is this. Actually, a pastor friend of mine sent this to me. It says, behind every angry woman stands a man who has absolutely no idea what he did wrong. <laughs> All right, next one. Arguing with a woman is like reading the software license agreement. In the end, you have to ignore everything and click, I agree. All right, one more. Never make a woman mad. They can remember stuff that hasn't even happened yet. It's bad. I know, it's bad, okay? And some of you ladies are like, why didn't you tell any on the guys? It's because we got it all figured out. We got it all together, okay? Now, how many of you ladies just got mad at me right there, and you're like, I'm canceling this sermon right now. I'm, I'm done, right? And I said that just because it's so easy for us to, to think even little things like that, because how many of you guys know we live in a cancel culture? Do you guys realize that? We live in a cancel culture. If you haven't realized, so if we find out, okay, Chick-fil-A supports who? Okay, we're going to cancel them. Hobby Lobby supports who? We're going to cancel them. Uh, you know, uh, Twitter banned who? All right, I'm going to cancel my Twitter. Uh, Netflix played what? All right, I'm going to cancel my Netflix. Uh, you know, and it just goes on and on. Okay, somebody's kneeling. All right, I'm going to cancel that now. Uh, I'm just going to, uh, or how about this one? How many of you guys have ever done this? Now, if you've just recently done this, just know this is not what triggered me to say this, okay? Because I didn't see it, okay? So, but how many of you guys have ever seen somebody do this or do this? Like, they'll make a big old long rant post and then say something like, and if you don't like it, just unfriend me, right? Just cancel me, bye-bye. How many of you guys have ever seen something like that before? How many of you guys have ever done anything like that before? We've all done something about like that before. So let's not get too much on our, you know, you know pendulum up here, like our pedestal up here, right? And so what I'm saying is we live in this cancel culture. How many of you guys know that? We live in a cancel culture. I don't have to tell you that, but I was reading this Forbes article. It just popped up uh, for some reason, and they defined it this way. Uh, it, it's basically successfully applying pressure to punish someone for perceived wrong opinions. And so we do this to people. We do this to corporations. We do this to whoever we can. And how many of you guys would just say, I just, I just hate living in the cancel culture? Anybody just like, I just don't like that, living in a cancel culture? And what I found odd is that many of us who don't like living in a cancel culture, when we hear about somebody who's canceling somebody that we like, we try to figure out who canceled our guy so that we can cancel them, right? And so it's, it's built into our, it's wired in us that we're just in this culture. And the reason I bring that up is because of what we're going to be looking at today is very challenging to, to reconcile with that. It's in Matthew chapter 5 verse 9. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And, and I just, as I was praying about this week, this, this scripture this week, this phrase kind of came up in my spirit that cancellation and reconciliation are on opposite sides. And yet we as believers are called to be ministers of reconciliation. It's hard to be a minister of reconciliation in a cancellation culture. That's why the Beatitudes and that's why the way of Jesus is upside down from the world. 
The way of the world says if somebody has an opposite opinion of you, that you cancel them. But the way of Jesus says that we are to be ministers of reconciliation. It doesn't mean we're going to win everyone over. It doesn't mean everyone's going to do the right thing. But it means that our heart needs to be not a heart of cancel culture, but a heart of reconciliation culture. And that's the way of Jesus. And, and sadly, I found that people many times don't want the way of peace. They just want their way. Right? I mean, isn't that true? I mean, we don't always really want peace. We just really want to have our way. And that's kind of uh, the result of that is that relationships don't last very long. Uh, relationships kind of have a shelf life to them. Marriages have a shelf life to them. And I, I love what my uh, uh, guy that I know who's a pastor, he said it this way. He said, it takes a long time to become old friends. And I thought about that. You know, so many of us want to have, one day we want to have old friends, you know, like friends that we've been through things together. But you can't shortcut your way to having old friends. It takes a heart of being able to re reconcile with people. It takes a heart of being able to be a peacemaker with people. It takes a heart of faithfulness to be able to get to the point where one day you say, I have good old friends. And so Romans chapter 12, I mean, this is all throughout scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says this, says, Live peaceably with all. Now, notice it doesn't say live peaceably with some. <laughs> it doesn't say live peaceably with those that you like. It doesn't say live peaceably with only your family. It says live peaceably with all. So I have a question for you. How many of you guys already, already hate where this message is going? Like you already, I'm like, I just, I don't like this. I'm already uncomfortable. I'm already ticked off at you, Pastor Sean. I don't even want to hear the rest of it. And the reason why something rises up in us like that is because we try to do this, but it's hard. Let's just acknowledge it's hard to do. It's hard to live at peace. And instead of having, instead of really having peacemakers in our life or becoming peacemakers, we have a lot of peace takers in our life. Have you noticed that? It seems like some people have a calling from God on their lives just to take your peace, right? I mean, like that seems like their mission is just to be a peace taker. And so I want to look at the life of a guy in scripture named Jacob. Jacob was a guy from the very beginning. I mean, even right out of the womb, he had trouble with relationships. He was a guy that was fighting with people really all of his life. And he has the, you know, he's struggling with his, his parents. He's struggling with his brother. He cheats his brother out of the birthright. But he wants to start over. And he wants to get things right. He runs away from everything else. And he has this encounter with God at Bethel. And where he sees God and the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And so he goes off and he goes to a different place and, and to this big ranch where his uncle uh, runs the whole place. And he sees this lady named Rachel, this young lady. And he, I mean, she caught his eye and, and he's like, man, I want to marry that girl. And he's like, I'm going to start fresh. I'm going to start new. And so we see this in Genesis chapter 29, verse 18. It says, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So he's like, man, I will prove to you that I am, I am a worthy catch. I will prove to you that I'm an honorable dude. And he says, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. All the romantics in the house, just say, aw. Yeah, let me read it again. It's Valentine's Day, so let me just read it again. And, and he served seven years for Rachel, but the seven years just seemed like a few days 
because of Rachel and what he was, what he was going to get. Now, that, I mean, he, he is, I mean, have you guys know, he's head over heels in love with this girl. And so what happens is on the wedding night, uh, somehow uh, after seven years, we, we don't understand how it all happened, but somehow uh, Laban, the father, switched out. Rachel, the younger sister, for the older sister, who the Bible hints at is maybe not as appealing. Uh, I don't know if she just had a good personality or what. I, was I supposed to say it that way? I don't think I was supposed to say it that way. But uh, she was not, I mean, Jacob was not attracted to her. But somehow, since she was the older daughter, uh, you know, Laban's like, well, really, tradition kind of says the older daughter goes first. And so I don't know if Jacob just took off his glasses and he couldn't see very well. Maybe he had too much punch at the wedding. I don't know. But he wakes up and he realizes that he has married the wrong sister. And so he, he's, I mean, he's angry, but he's like, man, what, what am I going to do? And so he decides, I'm going to serve another seven years then for Rachel. And, and he, I mean, just conflict, even when he's trying to have peace, even when he's trying to do the right thing, he has trouble uh, with his brother. He has trouble with his father-in-law. He has trouble with his wives. How many of you guys know one is enough? I mean, that should be a lesson that's learned here. And, and so he has trouble all throughout uh, his life. And so what do you do when you continue to run into trouble? When you have like toxic relationships, like we call them these days. You know, there's plenty of advice out there. There's plenty of memes you can go through on your Instagram feed or whatever and see all this kind of relational advice that is really stupid, by the way. Most of it is pretty stupid. You can go into articles. You can do all this type of stuff. What we want to do, though, as believers, is we want to go to the Word of God. We want to go and say, what does the Word of God say about this? Because what most of us do is we follow the world's way instead of God's way. We end up going with cancel culture instead of reconciliation culture. And, and we are called to, I mean, when you are in a relationship, and I'm not just talking about a marriage, but let's use marriage here for just a second. But when God puts you in relationship with somebody, it's so that you are to pull the plow together, so to speak. It means like when you do that, your strength is multiplied. When you're in a marriage and you're pulling together, your strength is not, it's not two people, what they can do on their own. It's actually multiplied strength. And I could share you illustrations, but I don't have time for that. But I'm telling you, your strength gets multiplied. When you pull the plow together with other believers in a church and you lock arms together, what happens? It's not just the amount of strength that we have as individuals that happens. It's when we pull the plow together, our strength is multiplied. But too many times, instead of pulling the plow together and linking arms together, it becomes a tug of war. Like my way, your way, my side, your side. And it's like two people on opposite ends. They're connected, but they're pulling in different directions. And what happens with that is we have a blame game that begins to happen. Well, it's your fault. It's his fault. It's her, her fault. And, and that just comes into a toxic culture, a cancel culture. Now, when I started to prepare this message, I knew from the very beginning without even prepping it that I was going to show a Joe McGee clip because I like Joe McGee. And every time I think about relationships, I think of Joe McGee and he's funny. And so I just like him. And he shares about this point about the blame game. So let's watch. Lucifer's on this planet. He's watching all this stuff. So what is this thing? What's this human thing here? And so Lucifer's watching. He knows he's lost all of his authority. He used to be the king tut of all angels. He's lost all of his punch. He's on this alien planet down there. He's, he, he's got nothing. He says, well, this human's got something. How about I get this stuff from him? He's got some authority. Maybe I get his authority. So long story short, Lucifer got Adam and Eve to sin. 
Actually, uh, the Bible says Adam sinned, Eve was deceived. They took the fruit, never how you want to think that is, it doesn't matter. When they sinned, something happened. All of a sudden, the blindness fell from their mind, their eyes, and all of a sudden they realized they were naked. And they said, oh, you're naked. I'm naked. And they went to J.C. Penney's to bought them some clothes. <laughs> so the Bible says God came down to talk with Adam and Eve every day in the garden. So typical, like God did every day, he walked through the garden. Now he knows where Adam is. He's trying to get him to answer. Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam's quiet. He's, he's oh man, it's God. He's, he, oh, it's God. Adam, where are you? And finally he says, I'm over here. So God, what are you doing? Adam says, well, I was hiding. Why are you hiding? Because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat that fruit I told you not to eat? And here it starts. In Genesis, here's where it starts. Adam's thinking like, it was the woman he gave me, God. It was the one. And when it was me and you, it was paradise. And it was good. Ever since you brought that one to my life, I've been going downhill, God. <laughs> Message translation. You ought to read it. It's real good. God turns to you and says, what's your story? And she's thinking, dumped on me again. That man's dumped on me again. She's thinking, well, well. Snakes fall. Snakes fall. From the very beginning, no human will take responsibility for themselves. It's my daddy's fault. My mama's fault. My teacher's fault. My coach's fault. Government's fault. It's always as long as somebody else's fault, I don't have to do anything. The only way you'll ever change your life is to get in front of the mirror. So whose fault is it? Yours. It's yours. It's all yours, big boy. Until you take responsibility for your own life, nothing's going to change. So God goes down the garden and says, "Well, Adam, now that you sin, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow." Up till now, since you didn't sin, the earth would produce fruit and food. Weather's perfect. It's great. But now that you sin, thorns and thistles are going to grow up everywhere. For the rest of your life, you'll work by the sweat of your brow. So you ever ask somebody, hey, how's work? Well, it's hard. Work hard. Let's start it in Genesis. The ground's cursed now because of sin. God comes down to you and says, well, you know, now that you sin, you're going to have pain in childbirth. Which I assume means there was no pain in childbirth before the fall. I guess having a baby is like spitting out a watermelon seed. <laughs> somehow after the fall, it's like spitting out a watermelon. It changed. I don't really know how to recover after that, but uh, <laughs> what I do want to do before we go any further is just kind of highlight what he was talking about there. And, and that is, as you listen to the rest of this message, I want you to understand this message is for you. It's not for the person sitting next to you. It's not the message for your spouse. That it's not the message that I sure hope they catch this. I sure hope so and so is listening. I sure I can't wait to send this to my friend. This message is for me, right? So let's just say this is for me. This is for me. And because I believe when we do that, then we open up the door for God to do some things in our heart. And so what we want to do is we want to learn what peace is. And the Bible talks about, uh, one of the words that it talks about is shalom, which really means, I mean, it really means well-being in, in totality. But one of the ways you can look at this word is it really means to flourish. So I want you to think about this in this way, when peace means to flourish. What does peacemaking mean then? Peacemaking simply means to make something flourish. So our goal in peacemaking, it, there may be conflict, there may be struggle, but our goal in peacemaking is to have flourishing relationships, that the end game is for a relationship to flourish. Now, my wife was uh, talking to me about this this week, and I asked her to come and help tag team preach. So give her a big hand as she comes and shares some things about this today. So something weird happened to me a couple months ago. Um, I was reading a book 
and all of a sudden a line just jumped out at me. Has that happened with anybody before? I mean, you're reading and all of a sudden something is just highlighted. And um, usually that's obviously the Bible or, you know, a book by a good Christian author or something. The weird thing was that this was a cookbook that I was reading. And the line was, chefs know that adding the correct amount of salt doesn't make food taste salty. It just amplifies the flavor that's already there. And I, and I read that and I felt God highlight that to me. And I was like, that's kind of weird, you know? And so, but then I immediately thought of this verse, Mark 9:50. salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then there's also the verse, which is just a few uh, verses after what we're talking about today, where Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth. And one thing I really love about God is that God doesn't just put random things in the Bible. There's always a reason. And if you're willing to dig a little, you will be just fascinated at what you find. And so I did. I dug a little bit about salt. And if you want to kind of geek out about something, salt is really, really fascinating. All of the things it does to all the different kinds of food. I just want to bring up three of them, just real quick. And the first one's uh, kind of short, but it was so good I couldn't leave it out. Salt is a binder. And so if you think about foods like sausage or pepperoni, part of the reason they st it sticks together is because of the salt. And if the salt wasn't there, they wouldn't stick. So remember, we're the salt of the earth, right? Where we are, there should be unity. There shouldn't be division. We should be a binding force in, in our families, in our relationships, in our groups. Yes? Yes? Anybody agree? Yes. Okay, number two. Okay, and this, I thought this was so fascinating. Inside our, just bear with me, it's a little gross, but inside our mouth, what salt does is it heightens our sense of sweetness and kind of lessens our sense of bitterness. And so if you think about some people might put salt on a grapefruit, which Sean had never heard of before. Has, does anybody? I don't, I don't know. Anybody any, put salt on any a Any weird people out there put that okay, on there's, there? There's just, a few, yeah. Or, there's a few oh, weird people, okay. <laughs> or watermelon or a tomato, something like that. And the reason that we do that is that actually heightens the way something tastes. It actually tastes sweeter, not more salty, but it tastes sweeter when you put salt on it. And so again, in our relationships, we should always be bringing the good, you know, the positive. Um, I was thinking about this this week and I automatically thought of my parents because when I was growing up, um, my dad, if you don't know him very well, he's a teacher. He is a teacher at heart. And so when I would get in trouble, which was just a handful of times, yeah, um, I would get the lecture and it was long and it was boring. And by the end, I'm like, please just spank me, time out, I don't care, just stop talking. But anyway, he would, um, he would bring up what I did, he would bring up why it was wrong, he would bring up what we could do next time, but then he would always end it with, but you know, Becca, I mean, you did this and this, this wasn't good, but, but you did this and so that means there's a positive. You know, so in other words, if I was really stubborn and you know, I didn't do something he asked, he would say, you know what, you're really stubborn, but that means you have a strong will. And that means there's, that you could do a lot and you won't let things stop you. And so anyway, he would always bring something good, you know, to kind of counteract, not counteract what I did, but try to give me hope. You know what I mean? And then my mom, my mom is just encourager. I mean, she, I don't think I've ever done anything wrong in her eyes. I mean, it's just, which is crazy to me. But she, I always joke that if I ever like took a wrong path or something and robbed a bank, she would say, Becca, you shouldn't have robbed that bank, but look at those organizational skills. 
you know, good job, good job for organizing. But anyway, that's kind of taking it to an extreme, but that's the way we should be. We should always heighten the good and kind of lessen the bitterness. We can still be in conflict. We can still point something out if we need to, but there's always good that can be brought. Okay, and then the last thing, salt preserves food. And you guys probably know that. You know, back in the days before refrigeration, they would salt all their meat, and that would preserve food. And the reason they did that is because salt draws moisture out, and so it actually creates an environment in the meat where um, death and decay can't happen. And in fact, one of the articles I was reading, <clears throat> it literally said, many disease-causing microbes are simply unable to grow in the presence of salt. Okay, I, when I read that, I got so excited. We are the salt, you guys, and we're to have salt in ourselves. So in ourselves and in our relationships, things that cause death, things that cause decay, things that cause disease, they shouldn't be around us, right? Isn't that amazing? So next, you know, when you're in conflict, when you're kind of going through some things, just remember, I need to have some salt. I need to be salt. All right, that's good, and I'm really, yes. I'm really hungry now, too, surprisingly. I don't know why I'm really hungry, but uh, what we want to do with the time that we have left is we want to give you five keys to peacemaking, and we're just going to tag team it, so I'll take one, she'll take one, we'll just go back and forth, um, but it, it, we're not going to spend a lot of time on each one of these, hopefully, but I really just want you to get the point of it, and so the first thing is this about peacemaking in relationships, and again, this doesn't just have to do with marriages, this is any relationship, this works for any relationship, um, but it works especially in marriage. Uh, Number one is have conflict in the right place. You're going to have conflict. If you live around anyone, there is going to be conflict. I mean, if you're breathing on this planet, there's not one person on this planet that I agree 100% with about anything, not even her. I, don't, I mean, it's, there's nobody you're going to agree with 100%. So you're going to have conflict. Uh, and, but the thing is, how you deal with conflict determines how settled you are in the ways of Jesus. How you deal with it. Because you're going to have it. So how you deal with it uh, proves how well connected you are with the word of God and the way of Jesus. And so a peacemaker is not without conflict. They just have it in the right place. And what I mean by that is we want to have conflict with the right person in the right way at the right time in the right environment. So there's a saying that uh, is kind of around my house. My kids probably know this because we talk about it all the time. If there's a situation that comes up and they've got an issue and they, they'll uh, come to one of us and they'll be talking about it. And, and more often than not, I'll say something like this. You're talking to the wrong person. Because your issue isn't with me. Your issue is with them. So you need, according to what the word of God says, you need to go and talk. Now, I'll help you process something, help you figure out how to say something, whatever, but I'll say it over and over and over again. I'll say, you're talking to the wrong person. And we try to have a culture in our house to do what the Bible says, that if I've got a conflict with somebody, I need to go to them in private and have that conversation and deal with that conflict in private rather than to everyone else in public. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. See, God's plan is for us to go to the person, the right person. So uh, the, the person that you need to work something out with, not your girlfriends, not your buddies, not even your pastor. There's a lot of times when people will come to me and I will tell people, I'll say, you know what, you're actually talking to the wrong person. Like, I'm happy to pray for you. I'm happy to pray with you. But what I want you to do is I want you to go work this out with the right person. 
And, and, and so we have to talk, not, not someone else in the church. Satan, he loves to get us to do things backwards. That's why this series is called Upside Down. Satan loves for us to make people think we agree with them in private and then go publicly to everyone else and talk about what we disagree about that person or that situation about. And so, so my wife and I, if we have a disagreement about something with our kids, what do we need to do? Well, we're going to go, and we may have a big disagreement about how to handle something, but how many of you guys know when we get in front of the kids, we better be saying the same thing. We better not be on two different pages and where I'm saying, well, your mom thinks this, but I think this. Like, that's Satan's way. That's not the way of Jesus. So we want to have conflict in the right place. If you look at it within a church or church leadership even, like the elders of this church, we may be having robust conversations and disagreements about different topics behind closed doors as we're trying to work out issues and problems and trying to, to challenge one another. But when we, get, when we make that decision, whenever we deal with that, we're going to be saying the same thing because we've decided that we're going to handle conflict. It's not going to be out there and then, then come back in here. I had a guy one time who, man, every time I talked to him, we, we'd seem to agree. We'd be on the same page. And then all of a sudden, I'd hear stuff like, well, well he said this and this and this. That's I'm like, well, that's totally different than what he said to my face. And I'd get back and I'd say, well, hey, I thought, what's the deal? I thought, and then I would hear rumors. How many of you guys ever had something like that happen before? It's because we have it backwards. And so a peacemaker is going to have conflict. We just have to learn to have conflict in the right place. And so we all mess up in this area. How many of you guys ever messed up in this area, right? Yeah, we have, I have. What do you do when you mess up? You just go make it right. You just go do the hard thing. You go humble yourself. You ask for forgiveness. You set the situation right. And so uh, conflict, have conflict in the right places. Becca's going to take point number two. Yeah, well, just real quick, too. Another thing that we would always say to the kids is, like, if they would bring something up that they're having with their friends, you know, we would say, okay, you can either decide to forgive and completely forgive and move on, or you can go talk to them. You can't, you can't not talk to them and just be upset. You know, like we wouldn't let them do that. We, they, you had to deal with it one way or another. Okay, so yeah, point number two is respond, don't react. There is always a gap. There's always a chance to choose your answer to something that somebody says or somebody does. There's always that gap. You have to, rem you have to learn to find the gap and make it wider. Um, I know there's so many things that happen, whether it's because of emotions or whether it's because of maybe habitual ways of thinking, that there's like knee-jerk reactions. There's knee-jerk reactions, but there is always the chance to choose. And I'll even take it farther, because even when we got to a place in our marriage where I was able, for the most part, to like kind of hold my tongue, um, outwardly, I was responding, but inwardly, I was reacting. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm just going to, I don't want to fight, so I'm not going to say anything. But, and so you even have to take it deeper on the inside. Um, so th that's one of my prayers for this message is that you would um, be able to see that gap and be able to recognize it and use it so that you can have a chance to choose. And if you want to practice doing this, just have some kids. There are lots and lots of opportunities to practice controlling your reactions, your, to, to practice choosing to respond. I remember um, I've homeschooled most of my kids' lives, and there was one of my girls was in middle school, and all she had to do was write a little paragraph about something. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, she didn't want to write this paragraph. And she kept, you know, doing all the other subjects, and, oh, do I have to write this paragraph? I don't want to. And so I finally, I just got fed up, and I'm like, you know what? 
if you say one more thing, it'll be two paragraphs. And she was like, oh, mom. And I'm like, two paragraphs. And she's like, but that's not, I'm like, three paragraphs. And she's like, mom. I'm like, four. And then I could still take you back to the place where we were living at that place. We're standing there. She's looking at me. She's shaking with trying to not say something. And I'm looking at her, and I'm raising my eyebrow, and I'm like, well. And so she finally turns around and goes and writes her four paragraphs. But I'm like, yes, <laughs> I won. I didn't explode. And she, she finished her assignment. And then um, the other one is it's kind of funny. My daughter, our youngest daughter, Lindsay, she was only two. Keep that in mind. She was only two when this happened. And she had done something. She'd gotten in trouble, and she was sitting on her bed as kind of a discipline for it. And in our house, if you are in trouble, you're not allowed to ask if you can get up ahead of time. You know what I mean? You're not allowed to, well, can I get up now? Can I get up now? Can I get up now? Word of advice, any of you young moms, lay that down, or they'll ask like 75,000 times. And so anyway, she knew this. She's only two. She knew this. And so I was in her room doing something, and she did the thing that kids do. Kids are so smart. She somehow asked if she could get up without actually asking if she could get up, you know, just kind of roundabout way. And I said, Lindsay, if I were you, I would not ask to get up. And without skipping a beat, she said, Mom, if I were you, I wouldn't have had me sit down in the first place. <laughs> and I'm kind of, I'm fed, she's, you know, and I'm like, and I couldn't decide in the moment whether to get really angry that she would talk to me that way or be kind of impressed that, you know, a two-year-old could kind of weave that sentence together. But I won that one. I, I, I handled myself and I dealt with it. But there is a gap. That, that's the point I want to make is there is a gap. There's a chance to choose. All right. Number three is this, to attack the problem, not the person. How many of you guys know it's so easy when you're in a conflict and you're trying to resolve things to make it very, very personal, to make it about the person instead of about the issue? Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. He's looking for just an opportunity, right? And so it, it, we, and the opportunity is usually found when we make it very personal. Like you do this, you never do this, you're the problem. And we begin to attack the, the person as if they are the problem instead of the issue that needs to be dealt with. And so, you know, the scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And so I remember when we were first married, you know, we didn't have a king size bed. We didn't have a queen size bed. We had a full size bed. Yeah, and, and you know, you think, hey, you're first married, great, right? Uh, then she was pregnant part of that time, which took up more space. And so, so we were there, and I remember this one time, we, I say one time, it's probably like a thousand times, I don't know, but there's these times when we'd get into an argument, and I'd think about this scripture, you know, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, and I, we're going to bed, and I'm like, I'm still angry though, I'm still mad. And so I'm like, I, I would get to the, to, in this full-size bed, I would try to make a point, and I would get to the very edge of my side of the bed just to say, I'm going to create as much distance as I can from you and try to punish you in some way, even if it's through my actions. I'd be hovering between the top of the bed and my eternity, like just getting ready to fall off there, you know, but I was trying to make a point. And I think we do that in so many ways where we try to make it about the person. But how many of you guys know in a marriage, your spouse is not the enemy? No matter what's happening, your spouse is not the enemy. In a friendship, they are not the enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. They are not Satan. The moment we see uh, our spouse or our friend as an enemy, Satan has a foothold in that relationship. 
And, and I just, I mean, maybe you're like me, but I thought for the longest time in my marriage that it was my calling in life to turn my wife to make her just like me, to, to fix everything that needed to be fixed and that when it wasn't being fixed that she was the problem. And that, that's not a good plan. That's not how it works. So in a relationship, we, you know, we learned this a long time ago, that when one person wins in a relationship, the relationship loses. So many times we try to think, okay, well, yeah, I, okay, I, I, I won there. No, it's, what we're, we're trying to do is to try to get the relationship to win. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. Yeah, so um, number four is to speak only what builds up. Uh, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear so I don't think we understand sometimes how much power words have. I mean, God created the world with words, right? And he gave some of that authority and that power to us. Words make a difference. Um, like if, you know, you could say something like, like if, you're, if, you, if, one of, if one of the spouses is always late or something, you know, the, again, you attack the problem, not the person. So instead of saying, you are so slow, you are so lazy, you know, then you, you just talk about how, well, let's talk about time management or something. You know, I don't know, something like that. But um, we've talked multiple times before about the brain and how the brain likes to take the easiest course of action. And so if you think a thought over and over and over again, every time you think a thought, you make the brain easier. It becomes easier for the brain to think that same thought. Now, the same goes for words. And so if, you know, if like, like, in our marriage, if I look and I'm like, Sean, you are so good looking. looking. You're so good looking. (laughs) I was trying to go for like a negative thing, but I couldn't write it there on the spot. Think of it. It's so hard. It's so hard to think of anything negative. Um, But anyway, so if I, if there was something negative that I was speaking over him all the time, you are so this and you will never change. And you, I cannot believe you are so much like that. Then at the very worst, He's going to start internalizing that. His brain is hearing this, and it's creating a path. I am creating a path of that horrible thing in him. Um, And at the very best, he has to then take the horrible thing I'm speaking, and he has to go, and he has to kind of pray and say, okay, God, what are you speaking over me? It's not what my wife is saying, which just gives me the chills. I don't want to be that. I don't want to speak something over him that God's not saying. And so, like I said, at the very best, he has to go and he has to kind of work through and say, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to say what um, God is saying. So remember, it's the gentleness of God that leads us to repentance. And I think he's calling us to be gentle too. You can point out something. You can speak the truth. But I think there needs to be love and there always needs to be that, that building up and not tearing down. All right. Give my wife a big hand because uh, she's helping me preach today. I'm, I'm going to finish up with the last point, and the last point is this. Leave the past in the past. Leave the past in the past. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and all wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Bringing up things uh, that you say you've forgiven, 
but you haven't really. How many of you guys have ever done that? It's like, you keep, how do I know you haven't forgiven? Because you keep bringing it up. <laughs> That's how you know that you haven't forgiven it because it keeps coming back up because we're not willing to leave the past in the past. And so what the scripture is challenging us to do is to not bring up the past because God has forgiven it. God doesn't bring it up again. So we need to not bring it up again. We need to not continue to bring it out again. God forgets and so should we because every good relationship, every good marriage needs a good reset button. How many of you guys had one of those original Ataris when you were a kid? Anybody have an original Atari? Yeah, we played that thing all the time as kids. There was this one game, I can't remember what it was now, um, but I'm gonna go back and figure it out because there's probably still, there's probably some good I can still get out of this. But uh, one time I just, I played and played and played this game until I saw some high score on a box or something. I can't remember where it was, but I played this thing until I had beaten that high score. And I don't know whether I thought there was some sort of prize for me, if I could send it in. I don't remember what I read, but I, I was like so excited that I ran to do, try to find a camera or something so I could take a picture of the screen. I mean, this was like, I mean, as a kid, like you don't have too many achievements and this was one of mine. And so I'm running back, I get the camera, I run back, and somewhere between me running to get the camera and me running back, some, someone had set the reset button on the Atari, and I had lost it. I was like, no, all my work, all my life's work is down the drain right now, and everything... And I think that's kind of how we look at when, when it comes to a reset button. We're like, no, everything I had to work with in this relationship is now gone. Every tool I had in the toolbox to bring back out again is now gone. See, that's why we don't like a reset button, because everything we have to work with is now gone. But a reset button is exactly what Scripture talks about. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it's talking about love, but the same applies. It says, love does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wrong. How many of us have a big old file cabinet in our heart, though, of everything? And we can just kind of pull that out at will, right? Some of us are better than others, right? Some of us just keep that file cabinet open, just waiting. <clears throat> but it keeps no record of wrong. When we keep score in a relationship, it ultimately leads to bitterness. So leave the past in the past. Now, I know I have to say this part. For one thing, I've been saying it to multiple people over the last couple weeks, and I don't know why it's continued to come up, so I figure it's a God thing for, for people in this season. But, uh, you know, there, there becomes that question. You know, well, what am I supposed to do? If I leave the past in the past, then am I going to get burned again? Is this going to go in the right direction? And the reason why we struggle to forgive is because we don't recognize the difference between forgiveness and trust. Forgiveness and trust are two different things. I can forgive someone in an instant, and it can be done forever, but trust is different. So in a relationship, I say it this way, how do you get trust? How do you build trust? Trust equals consistency over time. You can't shortcut the process. You can't cheat it. You can't go around it. There's no way to get there faster. Trust is simply consistency over time. And so what we want to be in relationships is we want to be forgivers. But sometimes if, if trust isn't being built in a relationship and if the time hasn't come for trust to be built, then the relationship is just not going to be the same. It, some relationships, because of what's happened, some relationships will never be the same. And it doesn't mean you can't forgive even if the relationship changes. 
Now, I do believe that God is a God of reset. And that if we submit our will to God, that when we begin to allow God to bring that consistency over time in us, that God can revive things in us that we never thought was possible. But it does take time. And so some of you guys might be saying, okay, so if I put all of these principles in place, all these five things in place, are you telling me, Pastor Sean, that my relationships are going to work out if I do these things, these principles from God's word? Are you telling me that my relationship's going to work out? Maybe. Maybe. I, I can't promise that they are because I didn't read you the rest of that verse in Romans chapter 12. Verse 18, I, I read the last part which says live peaceably with all. But here's what the first part says. The first part says if possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. What, what's it saying there? It's saying you have your responsibility. You have your part. But God created every, I mean God's word works. God's word is true. But God created every single person here with a free will. And if you're going to be in relationship with one another, you can do as much as it depends upon you and the relationships still not work because there are two people involved. And so we have to, if possible, as much depends on us, live peaceably with all. Not every relationship in your life is going to be able to work out this fairy tale thing. Look at Jacob. Let's go back to Jacob. Jacob works another seven years for Rachel. And even though Jacob does the right thing, Jacob, for his part, he continues to try to reset his life, to do the right thing. But eventually he has to depart from his father-in-law because they just couldn't get on the same page. As much as it depended upon Jacob, though, he tried to live in peace. And so why do we do these things if there's a maybe, well, we do these things, we put these things into practice because they are God's word and we do believe that God's word brings fruit. So you always wanna approach a relationship and God's word with the hope that everyone involved is going to submit their will to God's way. So you do that by faith, hoping for good fruit. And so we do that, but there's a more important reason why we do that. And it's, be, and it's found at the very end of that scripture we read our, our Beatitude scripture, and watch this. It says in Matthew 5, verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? For they shall be called sons of God. Called sons and daughters of God. Why do we become peacemakers? We become peacemakers because it's in God's DNA. When you become a peacemaker, you start to resemble God. You know, my natural kids have my resemblance because they share my DNA. I share the DNA of my father. Whenever you become a peacemaker, you start to resemble your heavenly father. And so that's why we do it. Above all, we don't do it even for the benefit that we have in our relationships. We do it because this is the way God looks. And as we do this, God becomes more part of our DNA. And so I'm gonna have the worship team come back up as we close up here, but I wanna read you one last scripture as we do. And you guys can stand up with me as we, we do this. And I'm going to read it because this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus does. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 16, it says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, let's remember, it says this, For he himself, that Jesus is our peace 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You wanna be a peacemaker? That's what it's about. It's breaking down the wall of hostility between you and another person. It's breaking down that wall. That's what Jesus did. How many of you guys know that in our life, sin was holding us back from, from a relationship with God? But Jesus came and became our peace by breaking down that wall that created a separation between us and God. And it says, he has broke, he's made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And, and that he might reconcile, here's that word, instead of canceling us, I mean, you guys know that God could have just canceled us because of sin, but he, instead he reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Well, what did Jesus come to do? He came to deal with the hostility, which was, I mean, it took conflict to deal with it. But the end game for us was so that we might live the abundant life, so that what? We might have peace, so that what? We might flourish. And so what I wanna do is I wanna just take just a moment right now, if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes and just ask the Holy Spirit if there's, if there's any relationship in your life right now that you need to apply these principles from God's word to. If there are any of those points that maybe stand out to you, it could be a marriage, it could be a friendship, it could be a coworker, someone else in church. And I just wanna pray over us as we take this moment. Lord, I pray that you would bring up anything that we need to hear in this moment. feel compelled to say this, that there's a fine line between offense and conviction. And most people have trouble discerning the two. Sometimes when you hear a message preached or you hear something like we've dealt with today, which is very personal, it's easy to find offense. I want you to listen to the voice of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's a fine line. there's an area of your life, a person in your life that the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now that maybe we need to change our attitude, our heart, our perspective, our position. Holy Spirit, we want to yield to you. We want to yield to you. And I just speak over our relationships. I just, I just speak supernatural flourishing over our relationships. I speak supernatural flourishing over our marriages supernatural flourishing over our friendships, supernatural flourishing over relationships between people in this church. We just speak a supernatural flourishing. The peace of God would come. The peace of God, the flourishing of God would come into our relationships. And we thank you, Jesus, for doing that, that you modeled that for us so that we can give that to other people. We thank you for that. Come on, let's worship one more time.